Good evening and welcome, dear friends and partners, to the Music Collaborative-wide webinar. Uh, I'm Khrushchev Ghani, and it's a great uh, honor for me to introduce today's meeting and to kick things off. While we've been all faced with the difficulties of the COVID pandemic, I'd like to emphasize that the state of music is strong. If you have a look at our uh, data at the moment, we've continued to collect high quality data for patients with prostate cancer, kidney cancer, as well as kidney stones. We have over 16,000 patients who've had a radical prostatectomy and over 21,000 patients who've had urethroscopy. And over these uh, uh, past five to 10 years, uh, as a collective effort in the state, we've managed to publish more than 50 papers. So I'd like to take a moment to congratulate everyone for their hard work. Today, we're gonna uh, discuss uh, some projects in detail, but I just wanna update the group on some recent progress when it comes to work in the prostate arena. There has been the initiation of the uh, MPOP pathway for an opioid-free pathway after radical prostatectomy. And our kidney surgeons have um, implemented a virtual tumor board, which has allowed uh, active discussion of complex cases uh, amongst at least 40 surgeons to improve the quality of care for patients with small renal mass. And if you haven't been able to join this group, I highly encourage it. In ROCKS, I'm excited to announce that we'll soon be able to do our first randomized clinical trial in uh, partnership with Coloplast, who have been the sponsors for this. And it will be a multi-center pragmatic study where we will assess differences in silicone versus non-silicone stents in terms of patient quality of life and healthcare utilization. And this fits very well with our primary aims and objectives of the ROCS program to reduce emergency department visits and to reduce healthcare utilization after urethroscopy. We're fortunate to have um, surgeons from MIU, Comprehensive Urology, Michigan Medicine, Henry Ford, Spectrum and IHA be part of this trial. A lot of the progress that we've achieved over the last six months to one year will be highlighted at this year's AUA. And I hope many of you are able to attend the meeting in Las Vegas, where 19 music abstracts will be presented. That is a collective effort of over 39 music urologists across the state. So congratulations to everyone for that hard work. So on to today's meeting. Uh, I am happy to announce that we have a keynote speaker. Uh, we'll hear more about that shortly, but the meeting will begin with the kidney group. Uh, Dr. Brian Lane and Dr. Alice Sumergian will speak about how to avoid unnecessary radical nephrectomies. And then we'll be joined in a panel discussion by Dr. Rogers and Dr. Markman. The ROCKS group will be led by Dr. Dow, and they'll be speaking about the patient experience after urethroscopy, and in particular, the new uh, patient-reported outcome system in ROCKS, ROCKS Pro. And in the panel discussion, uh, we'll have talks from Dr. Wensler and Dr. Siefman to give their unique insights on their practice. And the panel will be joined by Dennis Citek, one of our patient advocates, Raquel uh, Fenderson, who is one of the abstractors uh, with Dr. Siefman and also Dr. DiBianco, uh, the, our endourology fellow working in Music Rocks. And 
Finally, we will close with prostate that Dr. George will lead. And we're very fortunate to host our keynote guest speaker, Dr. Christian Pavlovich from John Hopkins uh, uh, University, who will speak about how he has integrated transperineal biopsy into his clinical practice. And this is an important uh, initiative for us in music. And we'll hear what the latest update is in terms of TP biopsy uptake across the state. And then we'll have a panel discussion involving Tammy Nuth, who is uh, a nurse at the Michigan Medicine uh, Urology Practice, along with Philip Clemens, one of the patient advocates, and also Dr. Ryan Nelson, a collaborative urologist, all providing their unique insights around transperineal prostate biopsy. I'd like to ask you all to stay right to the very end where Dr. Monty will provide some closing remarks and in particular, some important statements with respect to the future directions of music. Before we begin the meeting, I just want to take a moment to remind everyone that you can um, send questions and comments into the chat uh, function. So we look forward to as much interactive discussion as possible. And there will be time built in for live discussion of these questions. Before I hand it off to the kidney group, I just want to take a moment to remind everyone that we do have value-based uh, reimbursement metrics for a couple of quality initiatives. And two that I want to mention are around salvage radiation for biochemical recurrence after radical prostatectomy and active surveillance follow-up. And you can see here that we have target figures that we want to achieve as, as a state, and we're currently not achieving those targets. So I want to highlight these as you think about your practice to make sure that we're trying to align our care with these quality metrics. And, and these are important because if we do achieve these targets, we've been fortunate through our sponsors, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan, that they will then lead to extra payments for us all as a group. So as a group, we stand to benefit by up to $2 million a year if we can able to achieve these targets. So I just want to take a moment to remind everyone on that. And I know that together we can do this. So I'd like to now pass it on to Dr. Brian Lane, who's going to begin the kidney session. Dr. Uh, Brian has been uh, struggling himself with the cancer diagnosis. And we're very fortunate that throughout his uh, struggles over the last few months. He's still maintained a very active role in his leadership in kidney. I want to thank everybody uh, in Michigan and music for your hard work and collaboration and dedication, Brian. We're looking forward to your session. Thank you. Take it away. Thanks, Kershid. I just want to provide a brief update on the music kidney program. I'm really pleased uh, to say that we're up to 18 participating practices. Uh, we even have upper and lower peninsula participation now. Greater than 70 urologists are sharing data on their patients. Uh, and so we have information on greater than 3,200 patients. There is room for more. We would really love to see uh, as many sites as are able to um, come participate in this project. Um, and we just continue to learn so much. First thing I want to uh, remind uh, everyone of is the importance of renal documentation. So tumor complexity is essential for risk stratification of our patients and determining treatment appropriateness. Uh, and it's something we're really hoping that will be documented in every patient's chart. So we uh, presented this Goldilocks version, the simplified uh, renal score, where all you need is a uh, one to three score evaluated for the size, uh, endophyticness, nearness to the collecting system, 
uh, and the location along the polar axis. Uh, we have placards that are available. If you need any more for your clinic, the coordinating center would be happy uh, to provide them to you. Um, and we're doing this more. Uh, we also have made templates for office notes and for operative notes uh, that we can share again uh, after this meeting uh, for your use in the clinic. And those uh, have uh, the, the triple star uh, coded in uh, to help you fill in uh, tumor complexity and the other uh, important components that your data entry person will be looking for for your music kidney charts. So documentation has increased over time. Uh, it started at only about 25% of patients and we're up to about 50%. So it's better, uh, but really we would like to see this above 50. We'd love to see this 80 or 90% uh, because knowing this for any patient uh, enables us uh, as a team uh, to, again, deal with all the patient's data, risk stratify, and understand how we're uh, making decisions as individuals, as practices, and as a collaborative. So we've made this now a QI participation metric with a goal of greater than 50%. What that means is as a site, if you can meet that goal and record scores for greater than 50% of your patients, uh, that will qualify you for the additional payment. Uh, but if you're not meeting that goal, uh, that's going to be some dollars left on the table. So just trying to add some further encouragement uh, so that uh, along with all Uncle Sam, uh, we can convince you that documenting renal scores is of the utmost importance. The second thing we'd like to remind you about is chest imaging. And as a collaborative, you may recall that we decided together uh, to form some best practice uh, recommendations, uh, finding that based on the very low rate of metastases in tumors up to three centimeters, we feel that imaging is optional uh, and performing none is uh, a preferred practice. However, for tumors three centimeters and up, we are recommending that some X-ray or CT thorax be performed to image the chest, with an X-ray being preferred for three to five centimeters tumors and tumors greater than five centimeters undergoing a CT of the thorax. So this is a, a significant, important uh, step to take in evaluating our patients. And for that reason, we've elected to now begin collecting this data for our VBR metric. Uh, and so as a collaborative, we've set a goal of 55%. And this is a bit of a stretch, uh, because we've seen from 2017 to the present that our average was 52%. And this is something we feel we need to do better. Uh, all of these patients are at risk for metastasis and for that reason should undergo imaging. And when we look at our most recent period, so this is when the VBR uh, started, uh, when the data are important for this current period, uh, which is uh, quarter two of 2020, we see that from that point on, we're at 59%. So we are meeting the metric just barely. Um, but if as a collaborative, we don't meet it, uh, then we will uh, be not receiving the additional 2% uh, that Blue Cross Blue Shields uh, will pay to us uh, if these targets are met. Uh, and so we would, as a collaborative, be leaving $750,000 on the table. So uh, further incentive to uh, obtaining chest imaging as a collaborative. The second reason I'd like to bring to your attention, and again, just trying to move the needle, we want to see uh, that every patient for whom it's appropriate would get some imaging. 
Uh, and so if we look to the literature and we look at four prior studies, uh, we can see that the small tumors are very unlikely to have metastasized. But for the larger range, so from five to centimeters, we see between four to 7% of uh, patients have metastases. And we looked at music kidney data, this was 6% uh, for the five to seven centimeters tumors. And just an example of how uh, this is important and why it would impact our, our patient management. This is a 70-year-old patient I saw in the office. Um, he had this uh, nasty uh, tumor on the left kidney, uh, looked like uh, an appropriate candidate for a radical nephrectomy to me. Uh, I booked him on the schedule, uh, and I got a CT thorax to complete his uh, staging. Uh, on that thorax scan, we found both lung nodules and mediastinal lymph nodes. And for that reason, uh, we uh, postponed his nephrectomy, starting him instead uh, on TKI therapy systemically uh, for his metastatic disease. And then we will uh, reevaluate him in two to three months to see uh, his treatment response. So it is important uh, to get imaging. It can impact management. It's a lower percentage of patients, uh, but for each of these patients, uh, that we can uh, detect their metastases sooner, we may have made a significant benefit. So we looked further into uh, this in our patient's charts. I told you that 6% of uh, five to seven centimeter patients had chest metastases. Well, 4% of those patients only had their mets detected on CT thorax or on chest imaging. So the other 2%, they were found in the lower lung fields on the CT abdomen pelvis. Uh, but again, more likely than not, the thorax was what was necessary when we looked at the charts. Uh, and when we uh, add that to the fact that only 59% of our patients had chest imaging, that means of the 138 patients that were not imaged, uh, it's likely that about six patients had a misdiagnosis of metastatic cancer. So this is happening across the state. This is potentially happening in your practice. Um, and we're hoping that uh, these new pieces of information will help to change your practice to uh, a routine uh, obtaining of chest imaging uh, for patients three centimeters and up. So thanks for listening. Uh, on to Dr. Sumergin's presentation on radical nephrectomy appropriateness. Uh, take it away, Alice. Thank you, Dr. Lane. So we're gonna take a look at quantifying inappropriate radical nephrectomies and strategizing ways to avoid this outcome. This graph shows the distribution of initial treatment choice for renal masses in music. T1A masses, shown here in blue, are most often treated with an initial period of observation in about 55% of cases and partial nephrectomy in just over 30%. In music, we found that the initial rate of observation is higher than what's quoted in the literature, and this is probably more likely aligned with real-world practice. The small remainder of T1A treatment is split between radical nephrectomy and other options, including cryoblation. Conversely, T1B lesions are most often treated with radical nephrectomy, just over 40% of the time, and the rest are treated with partial nephrectomy or observation at about equal rates. So when looking at surgical patients, radical nephrectomies make up only a small portion of treatment for T1A masses, with less than 20% of these surgeries resulting in nephrectomy. However, in T1B masses, over 60% of the surgeries are radical nephrectomy. About 50% of the T1A masses resected by radical nephrectomy were high-complexity tumors with renal score greater than or equal to 10. 
When looking at the T1B group, as expected, high complexity cases were likely to result in nephrectomy. However, there's still a fair number of low and intermediate risk tumors that also did. When we sought to identify which patients in these low and intermediate complexity groups would have been appropriate for alternative therapies and identify patients and tumor characteristics that contribute to the decision to move forward with radical nephrectomy. Still, more than half of all tumors in the registry are missing renal score. So to echo Dr. Lane, please do continue to collect this important tumor characteristic. Without it, QI initiatives like this are pretty limited as complexity scores factor in majorly to treatment decisions and outcomes. Practice level variability in rates of radical nephrectomy indicate that there may be some QI opportunities here. Here we're looking at all kidney cases, including the management with surveillance, not only surgical cases. In T1A masses, we're doing pretty well as a collaborative with an average of 6% of all kidney cases resulting in nephrectomy. 11 participating practices are shown here that have a minimum of 10 cases entered in kidney. You can see on the left side of the screen, rates of radical nephrectomy for T1A masses range from zero to above 30%. On the right side, shown in green, T1A masses are treated 41% of the time with radical nephrectomy on average. There's even more variability in the T1B group with rates of less than 20% to 100%. So we initially sought out to determine if there are certain patients who are more appropriate for and may even benefit more greatly from radical nephrectomy. And if so, what tumor and patient characteristics contribute to that treatment decision? By identifying cases where moderate or major QI opportunities were found, we were able to narrow down characteristics of patients in whom radical nephrectomy may have been avoided, leading to strategies to reduce unnecessary radical. Charts for all patients with T1A and T1B low, intermediate, and unknown complexity tumors who underwent radical nephrectomy were reviewed by eight music urologists with experience in kidney cancer surgery. All cases were assigned a quality uh, category of improvement by each reviewer, uh, with categories including none, minor, moderate, and major room for quality improvement. The scores were all averaged, and similar characteristics were identified for each group. Common themes in cases with little or no area for improvement are listed in blue. These patients who are already on dialysis, this includes patients already on dialysis, those who went in for a partial uh, and it was attempted, but intraoperatively it was converted to radical for reasons including bleeding, concern for a positive margin or other unexpected finding. Patients who are elderly, have significant comorbidities or on anticoagulation tended to be more appropriate for radical nephrectomy, especially those with a normal kidney function. Tumors that were just not amenable for partial nephrectomy as noted in the surgeon's documentation were also considered to have little or no area for improvement. These cases are not just appropriate for radical nephrectomy, but these patients may also benefit from the decision to do radical nephrectomy over partial nephrectomy. The consensus was that cases that met criteria for moderate or major QI included those involving small or low complexity tumors or the combination of both, younger patients, especially those with CKD, or those in which uh, the biopsy or surveillance could have benefited the patient. Additional analysis showed that there were other similarities between cases with moderate or major QI opportunities. The smaller the tumor, the more likely cases received a higher score. Patients with fewer comorbidities and lower BMI were often identified as patients with areas for improvement. And finally, presence of non-solid or indeterminate lesion was a significant factor. 
So here's an example of a case that fit into the none uh, slash minor category. This is a patient who's a 74-year-old with adequate renal function who is on anticoagulation. The tumor was a 6.6 centimeter posterior T1B with a renal score of nine. All reviewers agreed that there was no QI opportunity here. A partial would be very difficult and potentially result in significant bleeding complications given the anticoagulation or a compromised oncologic outcome. Given the presence of good renal function, an nephrectomy was favored. Here's an example of a moderate QI opportunity case. This patient is a 68-year-old with suboptimal kidney function and a history of AKI who had biopsy-proven chromophobe RCC. And the mass is T1B at 4.5 centimeters, but the complexity score is low at six. It's mostly exophytic and located at the upper pole, not crossing polar lines. For a patient with poor GFR to start and less aggressive tumor type, attempt at partial would have been favored, and all the reviewers agreed. So this graph shows the breakdown of QI opportunity scores. As a collaborative, we're doing better than we had initially thought. 19% of cases had some moderate or major QI opportunity score, with an additional 42% having minor areas for improvement. We're surprised because we thought that there was going to be a larger percentage of patients undergoing unnecessary radical. A large portion of radical nephrectomy patients are appropriate candidates. Perhaps these patients benefited from avoiding an unnecessary partial nephrectomy and had a better outcome with their radical. 19% may not seem like high a high number, but it does indicate that one in five patients who underwent radical nephrectomy may have had a better treatment option to save their kidney. And there is no question that loss of the kidney in a person with CKD or risk factors can be a very damaging and life-altering uh, life event. Although avoiding nephrectomy in these 19% of cases did not change the overall numbers that much, it's still roughly 15 kidneys that are saved per year in Michigan. So strategies for improvement are listed here. First, obtain additional dedicated renal imaging for further characterization of indeterminate lesions or lesions with enhancement that has not been proven. In patients who are appropriate for surveillance, consideration of this as an initial management strategy could avoid unnecessary surgery, especially in patients with limited life expectancy. Renal mass biopsy may be helpful for characterizing lower or benign tumors prior to proceeding with nephrectomy for patients who are at risk for loss of renal function. And for tumors that are T1A or those that are lower intermediate complexity T1B, partial nephrectomy should be considered, particularly in young patients, those with CKD, proteinuria, or risk factors for developing these. Chart review pointed out that radical nephrectomy may not actually be the preferred uh, in more cases than we had originally thought. Of course, there are situations in which partial nephrectomy is not the preferred option. Instead of prioritizing partial nephrectomy when it's feasible, there are cases in patient demographics in which it may be more harmful than helpful. So introducing partial nephrectomy notes. Listed here are deviations from the expected partial nephrectomy course. This includes length of stay, three plus days, EBL greater than 500, warm ischemia time greater than 30 minutes, uh, positive margin, post-op, emergency department visit, or post-op readmission. Partial nephrectomy carries a higher risk of potential deviations and sometimes complications, which is why radical is pr the preferred approach in older and sicker patients, especially in those who are anticoagulated. The option should be considered to reduce unnecessary morbidity. 
as tumor size increases, risks associated with partial nephrectomy are also higher. This graph shows that the rate of partial nephrectomies in which we have any one deviation occurred. For tumors less than five centimeters, partial nephrectomy carries about a 30% risk of one of these events. And as that size goes up above five centimeters, the risk goes up to over 70. So when we look at the same data split up by complexity score, the higher complexity tumors carry a risk of greater than 50% of one deviation, which is expectedly higher than the lower intermediate risk tumors. More than 50% of patients with a five to seven centimeter or renal high complexity tumors undergoing partial nephrectomy have greater than or equal to one notes deviation. Negative margin status should also be a major priority when it comes to partial nephrectomy. High complexity tumors have a positive margin rate of about 15%, which is significant. The risk of having a positive margin should be carefully weighed against the benefit of nephron sparing. In conclusion, uh, quality chart review showed that just over 20% uh, of radical nephrectomies could have been optimized by considering another treatment approach. And we started to look at nephrectomy appropriateness as a QI opportunity because there was originally a thought that radical nephrectomy was overutilized. We found that this didn't seem to be the case in music uh, and that radical nephrectomies were actually being used appropriately and in patients who likely benefited from this approach. Nonetheless, 15 kidneys per year could be saved by employing strategies to avoid unnecessary radical. Most T1A tumors do not result in radical nephrectomy. In music, over 90% were treated in some other way, with surveillance being a common initial management strategy. And many patients with T1B tumors, regardless of complexity, are appropriate candidates, candidates for radical nephrectomy and may benefit from avoiding the potential issues that come along with partial nephrectomy. AUA guidelines recommend prioritizing partial nephrectomy in T1A masses and favoring radical really only in the case in which partial would be highly complex and challenging even in experienced hands. Perhaps the pendulum has swung too far the other way towards the partial direction. For future QI initiatives, we're gonna look at partial nephrectomy appropriateness in complex and large renal masses. And for difficult cases and an extra set of eyes, the virtual tumor board is available. So the tumor board is over email platform. Currently there's 39 patient, uh, physicians participating. 24 of them have submitted a case or responded to another's case or done both. Uh, this is an example of a uh, case that was shared. This patient is a 52 year old man with multiple medical comorbidities, including diabetes, hypertension, COPD, cardiac cath, and a BMI of 35. He did have a normal creatinine, however, of 0.84. He presented with a small 2.3 centimeter left renal mass. He had a biopsy that was positive for grade two RCC. The renal score was nine. And initially he was offered radical nephrectomy but sought a second opinion. Uh, there were three votes for robotic partial, four votes for ablation, one vote for surveillance. And uh, the final treatment was radical nephrectomy due to patient preference. Final path was T3A. So you can see how complex of a decision this was, especially given that uh, the treatment option varied by urologist um, with multiple different options being thrown out. Uh, it, this can really help with um, hearing other surgeons' rationales in terms of forming your own treatment plan and counseling your patient. 
If you'd like to participate in the virtual tumor board, email the coordinating center at askkidney at umich.edu. Finally, we'll be starting to collect video submissions for partial nephrectomies to learn from each other and continue to grow in performance of high quality partials. In October, the skills workshop will be focusing on partial nephrectomy and a video review will be planned. We look forward to exploring not only appropriateness and notes, but also surgical technique. Thank you. Uh, we'll now move to the Q&A session. Thanks, Alice, again, for uh, that uh, great uh, introduction to what our findings are. Uh, from this QIE intervention. I want to remind all the participants, if you would type uh, questions for our panelists uh, into the chat, then we can get to them. Uh, I'm joined here by Tom Ottman, Alice Smirgen, and Amit Patel. Uh, and I just want to open it up. We'll start some discussion with some questions that we already have, and then we'll get to your questions as well. So why don't I start, uh, Tom, with you. You know, you're uh, Thanks so much for participating in this process and reviewing uh, all the things. What do you think uh, about all these findings? Is this surprising to you or yet what you'd expect? What are some of your impressions? Well, thank you, Brian, for uh, asking me to participate. It was a pleasure to be involved in uh, this project. And I think that uh, uh, most of the findings to me were not surprising. I uh, very much, uh, feel that integrating the uh, renal score, as we all were suggested to uh, try to upgrade uh, our input on that, uh, back in June of 2018 has been very beneficial because uh, it gives us uh, a deeper appreciation of what we're trying to do and it can objectively quantify what we're trying to do. I think it's pretty easy to achieve 100% on these. Uh, the question is, make sure where you put it in your, your EMR so that your data extractor can find it. And uh, when we started doing that, it was a little bit difficult for the data extractor to find what the renal score was, so she would come back and ask. But what I do now is I do it at the initial consultation in my EMR, and then we, uh, at the day, on the day of surgery, and all the team, the participants will reevaluate that and get uh, more information and uh, come to a conclusion. And then of course we put it, I put it into the operative indications of the operative report. So there's uh, multiple areas uh, for our, our data extractor to easily find that. And, uh, and I think it's pretty easy to achieve 100%. Hopefully we're there at this point. But I think- right. Actually, I'll, I'll mention actually for all the others on the call, you can make comments in the chat too. It doesn't have to be a question. And so, I'll try to reiterate them or, or put them out here. If you know a hundred folks are like, "Yeah, this is great. Of course, I'm going to do renal scores." You will hear that out of my mouth. And if there's a lot of pushback of people uh, saying there's little uh, to limited value, that hey, this is the forum to do it. So definitely, I'll be interested to hear uh, thoughts, and we'll be interested. Why don't we go, uh, Amit, to you? Uh, what about these results of 19% moderate or major? Uh, deviations. Does that seem high, low? How, how do you feel about that? Um, well, you know, 19%, you know, th there is always the, when you're looking at through these notes, it's sometimes difficult to fully understand how the process came from when the patient was seen in clinic 
to uh, the decision of radical nephrectomy. You know, sometimes the patient is, it was discussed in the clinic about doing a partial, but then a radical was there and it, you know, it wasn't an interoperative conversion. So, you know, sometimes there, you know, when you're doing a shared decision-making process with a the patient, there does obviously come a player factor of the patient wanting to, to push to one form of treatment or the other. Um, but definitely, I think, you know, within that 19%, there is that group of patients who had small tumors, um, who are fit and healthy, that perhaps, you know, there should be a greater sway towards pushing for a partial. But, you know, like I mentioned, you know, you have to balance that against the patient's own beliefs and choices in terms of treatment decisions they make. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the concerns, and Alice, I'll put this question to you, that, uh, you know, I'm rather pro-partial whenever feasible. Uh, and so even just approaching the the topic suggests that partial is better. Um, has this changed, like looking at all this information, has this changed your approach to these discussions in patients, partial, radical, surveillance, uh, having this new information, or is this kind of uh, just solidify what you, you already were thinking? Definitely. <clears throat> I do think it's changed the way that I approach these patients. Uh, for one thing, I pretty much always, um, if I think that something is not amenable to partial, I will most of the time uh, talk to patients about having a biopsy done to make sure that we're not doing a radical for benign disease. But in addition to that, have really factored in more uh, patient life expectancy, despite you know what the size of the mass is. Um, and if you have a small mass that doesn't look like it's very accessible for a partial nephrectomy me or has a high renal score, I'll, I'll start them mostly on a uh, period of active surveillance if the patient is amenable to that. It's, that's great. Again, I, I think you mentioned one of the things we learned from the, the previous was biopsy if you're going to do a radical, um, which certainly was not on the top of my list uh, before, but now has really become a, a standard part of my practice. Tom, uh, tell me some about uh, this pushback about uh, potential complications or poor oncologic outcomes with partial nephrectomy. Does this, what do you think about a QI effort to see if some partial nephrectomies should have been radicals versus this side where we're saying radical nephrectomy should have been partials? What do you think about that? Is there value to that or yeah. not so much? Yes, I think there would be a uh, great value to that. And, uh, I think there's a couple of factors in terms of the, the clinical aspect of uh, high complexity tumors. And the two factors that I always uh, integrate into a discussion with the patient is the, the, the level of how I am comfortable doing a high level complex uh, tumor in terms of uh, my ability to get negative margins but also the patient's uh, input in when you discuss the possibility of saying, well, I think this is a high complexity tumor. I think we can get uh, this done with a partial nephrectomy, but there is a certain percentage of margins that are gonna be positive. And sometimes the patient might simply just say, I don't wanna take that chance. I would just like to have this kidney removed. So I think it's uh, the level of experience and also the other factor uh, involved is the patient's desires that have to be very carefully assessed and integrated into the, the treatment program. I, I really like your, your thoughts there, Tom. I, I think it's a lot different when we look at each other's images and we can say, oh, I can partial that, I can do that. that 
that's one aspect, but that discussion with the individual patient and understanding what their priorities are, what their risk tolerance is, what they're most concerned about. Because some patients are really concerned about losing a kidney and other patients are really concerned about having a smooth operation and not having a complication. And sorting that out, I think, is really helpful. You know, and Brian, one other thing is, you know, as you progress through your career, there are certain cases that I feel more comfortable doing partial now that I didn't feel comfortable a few years ago and I would have recommended a radical nephrectomy. So I think these two issues of the level of experience and your confidence in getting a, a negative margin and also the patients who desire are really important in this aspect. Yeah, that's great. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that as well. Um, any other factors that uh, come to mind for you? I think we've been discussing some of them, but when you're helping the patient to choose a treatment? Um, you know, I, th I think it's also about sort of putting to them, you know, giving them an understanding about life expectancy, and that may be about um, comorbidities. And I know that's something uh, you, you've been working on as well to develop a tool to help us with that. Um, and, you know, speaking back the, to the positive surgical margin rate, you know, it does depend on the type of patient we're dealing with. You know, a positive surgical margin, someone with CKD who may have been put onto dialysis, you know, you probably save them going onto dialysis versus, you know, the, the risk of recurrence, although it may be higher, is not definite with a positive surgical margin. So, you know, you do have to balance those things, things out as well. Yeah. I think um, the other thing I'll say is just the opportunity to dialogue uh, with others and colleagues uh, to me has been a value because in all of the tumor board discussions we've had, there's always some different thoughts. And I hope those on the call can kind of hear that all of four of us may have similar mindsets, but non-identical opinions. And I, I just encourage participation with the tumor board or with uh, colleagues locally, particularly for challenging cases. If it's clear what you're going to do, that's one thing. But a lot of these cases are, are kind of borderline. Alice, other uh, comments or thoughts on this? I think we've you know mentioned a lot of them, but just to echo you, I think the virtual tumor board has been really helpful. Um, you know, just and just reading over others people's cases and seeing how differently people think, I think it's been a valuable uh, experience, and I'm glad that we have it. Yeah. Well, I think we're at time uh, again, just to conclude the kidney section. Uh, we would welcome participation from any urologists, any groups who are not uh, yet apart. Come uh, contribute your cases, join the, join the group. And uh, even if you're not, you're welcome to participate in the virtual tumor board. Uh, and I think that's been a really valuable exercise for those who are participating. Uh, with that, we'll conclude this and I'll turn it over to Casey Dow. I'd like to thank everybody for that great discussion. Uh, my name is Casey Dow. I'm the director of our ROCKS initiative, and I'm going to be discussing uh, the patient experience after your ureteroscopy today. So Music ROCKS was founded on the principle of decreasing modifiable emergency department visits after kidney stone surgery. And two of our kind of keystone initiatives have been uh, minimizing opiate prescriptions after ureteroscopy, as well as investigating the impact of stent emission on our outcomes. It's important, though, that we evaluate whether these interventions are uh, figuratively shooting ourselves in the foot. And what I can share with you is that neither of these interventions, either omitting stents or decreasing opiates, are increasing our ED visits. So they appear to be in line with our QI goals. 
The next four slides, I'm going to kind of show the impact of these two initiatives uh, on Music Rocks and patients. What we're plotting here is since the beginning of Music Rocks in 2016 to our current state of 2020, our opiate prescribing rate. So what you can see is that we started in 2016 with 90% or more of patients receiving some sort of form of an opiate after your ureteroscopy. But with discussing strategies on how to reduce opiate utilization through collaborative wide meetings, the implementation of the pain optimization pathway, help from the state level opiate mandate, and the Blue Cross Blue Shield uplift payment, we've seen dramatic declines in opiate prescribing to the tune of a 71% absolute reduction in opiate prescribing at our current rate of 22%. I think it's important to view this, though, in context of the patient. And so the number 22% doesn't tell the whole story. What this means for patients is that 2,100 fewer patients are receiving opiates per year. That's, less, that's 40,000 less opioid pills in the, in the community and 140 fewer patients becoming opiate dependent. So this is really a, 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 an amazing a, a set of work for the state of Michigan and our patients. Similarly, what we've seen is that our rate of stenting across the collaborative uh, is widely variable. So what we're plotting here is individual music urologists and their use of stents uh, after ureteroscopy, ranging from as low as 10% to as high as uniform stenting at 100% rate. So we've evaluated uh, um, the impact of stent placement on outcomes in music. In, more, in just shy of 10,000 patients in whom 73% were stented, uh, we found that there was uh, an increased rate of emergency department visits in the stented cohort. And even after adjusting for case complexity uh, and patient factors, we found that stent placement increased the odds of an emergency department visit by 25%. We're not alone in Michigan in understanding the impact of ureteral stents. I think this is underscored by a recent collaboration with the Urology Care Foundation, a national organization with the help of the Urology Care Foundation uh, and our vast resources at Music, we've created a what to expect, expect with a ureteral stent video, which is now available live through musicurology.com backslash stent video. So please check this out. But I think what's really important to recenter ourselves uh, is to understand that there might be an elephant in the room. And what I mean by that is I showed you a few slides that showed that it doesn't appear that emergency department visit rates are increasing if we limit opiates or are tinkering with the way we're placing stents. But what might be lost is the patient perspective. Are these patients struggling with a lack of opiate or is stent omission resulting in more pain and discomfort? So what I'd like to talk about moving forward now is a, uh, the patient reported outcomes pilot that we piloted at Michigan Medicine to segue into the second half of our talk. So the vital component here is the capturing of the patient perspective. What we did is captured all Michigan medicine patients undergoing ureteroscopy for urinary stone disease and, and administered them the patient reported outcomes measurement information system or PROMISE survey. So this is a non-disease specific validated questionnaire that looks at things like pain intensity, how much pain a patient is experiencing at time points, as well as pain interference, which is the way that that pain impacts their, their quality of life. So what we're showing here uh, is the results of that uh, pilot with respect to our opiate prescribing. So on the left side of the chart, you're seeing pain intensity. Again, that's the pain the patient is experiencing at any given time point. And interference, which gets at questions like how that impacted social interaction, being able to conduct daily activities, et cetera, et cetera. And what we're plotting here in light blue is those patients prescribed opiates, and those in dark blue, those that were in an opiate-free pathway. And we assessed patients at baseline, so pre-surgery, seven days after surgery and six weeks after surgery. And what we can see here 
is that those on an opiate omitted pathway had no difference in pain intensity or interference, either at baseline, seven days after surgery, or six weeks from surgery. So it does not appear that our opiate sparing pathway is impacting patients negatively. On a similar front, we looked at how stent placement might impact these same uh, factors. And what we see here is a completely different story. Though the patients were similar at baseline, whether they were stented uh, in the light blue or not stented in the dark blue, at the seven-day time point, patients reported significantly less pain, intensity, and interference if a stent was omitted. So again, uh, these findings are quite compelling uh, and further bolster the work that we're, that we're doing surrounding stent omission. So what did we learn from the Music Rocks Pro Pilot? I think we found that an opiate-free pathway following ureteroscopy does not appear to negatively impact patient-reported outcomes. And moreover, stent omission following ureteroscopy was associated with significantly less pain for patients at the seven-day postoperative time point. And we found from larger systematic review that this stent omission did not result in the need for urgent stent placement, which is a fear many urologists have. But at this point, can we be completely satisfied with our progress? What if I told you that we can do better? This chart here is plotting urologists that performed more than 10 ureteroscopy cases in the Music Rocks registry from the time we implemented the pain optimization pathway to present. And what we can see is that our average rate of opiate prescribing, as you saw in the prior figure, is around 25%, so we're doing quite well. But if we examine this group here, which is those patients that are above that average, and we were able to encourage them through education and outreach to drive their rate down to that rate of 25%, we could have possibly prevented an additional 6,930 opiate pills from entering the community and 45 patients from opiate addiction. So again, I think that this is an obvious area where there's room for improvement and something that we're gonna continue to be pushing going forward, potentially using levers such as value-based reimbursement. So with that, I'm going to be introducing Dr. David Wenzler, um, who is a urologist at Comprehensive Urology, to provide kind of a microcosm within music, uh, presenting comprehensive data in this space. I think one of the coolest things about music is that as a state, we function together and thrive. But what we can see with a large multi-specialty group practice like Comprehensive Urology is that they, in some ways, are kind of like a brief snapshot of what the larger state is like. So David, uh, thank you very much for presenting uh, your side of the talk. Thank you, Casey, for the introduction. I'm going to warn everybody that in explaining what I'm about to explain, we are taking the red pill that Morpheus is offering and exploring something new, even if it may be uncomfortable, rather than simply taking the blue pill and doing what we've always been doing. If this sl first slide looks familiar, it's because it is. This shows a wide variation in opiate prescribing following ureteroscopy among practitioners. Some never give it. And then up to as many as 60% of the time, another urologist gives it, with an average number of patients, or percentage of patients, receiving opiate prescriptions 18.6% of the time. We see very similar variation when we look at stent placement by urologists after ureteroscopy. The lowest here is 16, with several urologists placing stents 100% of the time, no questions asked. Again, the average is 76.9%. And earlier, Casey did show us that stent placement increases rates of ED uh, visits following ureteroscopy. So again, in summary, there's a huge variation in opiate prescribing from 0 to 61% and variation in stenting rates from 16 to 100%. So why? 
Do urologists not believe in specifically leaving out opiates? Are they unaware of the MPOP initiative? Have they lost interest in it? Are there other factors, again, such as convenience or familiarity, or they think it's going to cut down on office calls? Similarly, why is there a variation in stenting rates? Why are some people so insistent on always placing a stent? Um, these are the questions that we want to propose to you, and we'd like to open this up for discussion. Thanks a lot, David. Um, I think that we really presented some compelling data um, dovetailing off some of the great work the Prostate uh, Initiative has done around opiates. Um, I guess the question to our panelists uh, is, and, and maybe those that are on the webinar could chime in via the chat, is we all recognize we're going to get to a non-zero rate of opiate prescribing, right? There's going to be patients that can't take NSAIDs or patients that we just don't think pass the eye test, but where should we shoot as far as a goal here, David? Do you have a, do you have a sense for that? We're sitting at about 25% right now. Um, I think, I think you're absolutely right. First of all, there are certain people that just can't take, you know, anti-inflammatories. Um, you know, I had a patient actually this week who was like, well, you know, my Tylenol three works for my stent discomfort and that's what I want. And there was like no talking out of it kind of thing. Um, but I think 10% is, you know, would be aggressive. 15%, I think we could reach for sure. But if we could get it down to 10% or less, you know, single digits, I think we've done some really, really good work. Kind of piggybacking off that, and you kind of shared your own experience. Um, you know, we, we all feel or have felt external pressure, right, with the legislation that was passed in 2018 and the uh, less visible but very clear opioid epidemic. So I guess my question is, how have you seen your practice change over the last three years with regard to opiate prescribing, David? So I think, you know, the MPOP, you know, initiative did did one thing. Um, obviously, I think that helped. But I, I would say in my experience, I kind of did stop prescribing opiates at the time of the law change in Michigan um, in 2018 that you mentioned, um, just because of the excess paperwork and things like that. And at that, at that time, at least the opiate um, epidemic was really kind of a big focus and patients were, you know, okay with it. And, you know, at least it, I haven't tracked my personal data, but I'd say the number of people going into the emergency room or coming into my office or calling the office complaining of pain hasn't really increased very much. John, um, uh, can you tell me, um, as someone who's kind of in their terminal part of training, how the work you're doing in music and the work that you've done in this space is going to impact your practice as you go out on your own? Yeah, I mean, I think at the beginning it was, you know, where, where we were training was this was even a possibility. You know, when you're young and you're first starting out, you kind of mirror practices of, of the people that are mentoring you and teaching you. The data that was coming out of Michigan and the music was, was eye opening. And just as it became possible, the thought became possible, then you start doing it and you realize, hey, these are doing just as well. It's not better um, with multimodal uh, pain therapies that are those pamphlets and everything that are available. So, so we're going to move away from opiates for a second. We got a uh, question from Lynn McCormick. Thanks, Lynn. Hope you're doing well. Um, asking if we don't use stents in patients that are at risk for stricture, will we be causing problems for these patients in the future? 
uh, Lynn, I think you bring up a great point and something that we need to always be cognizant of. Uh, and maybe David can um, jump in here too. But I'd like to remind everybody that the um, stent omission uh, panel that we conducted uh, really only evaluated those patients that we considered non-complicated. So Lynn, to your point, if you feel as if a patient has a gnarly impacted stone, um, the ureter doesn't look right, these are not patients that we're advocating stent emission for because you're right. Um, an undrained kidney can present problems for a patient in the form of later stricture formation, uh, pain and suffering for the patient, which might prompt an emergency department visit, shooting some of our initiatives in the foot, so to speak. But what we're highlighting here with the stent omission appropriateness criteria, which will be um, uh, more public uh, in the form of placards and things for you guys to review, uh, is those patients that we deem uncomplicated. So um, uh, very good question uh, and uh, always something that we have to keep in the back of our mind. And any guidance that we're providing here always takes into account the, the judgment of the operating physician. What do you think, uh, David, if we're, if we're pivoting here for a second, because the other initiative we talked about was stent emission, what is your feeling uh, on that matter? And, and how do you feel a large group like comprehensive urology, which encapsulates in many ways um, uh, the whole wider music experience can tackle an issue like that? Is there willingness within a group to begin to look at that? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think it's ultimately, like you mentioned, it's ultimately going to fall on the surgeon, you know, and their comfort level. Um, you know, if the stone's really big, if you have extensive lasering time, you know, not all of us uh, might be as, you know, willing to forego the stent as Dr. Ghani is. Um, but, it, you know, you have to judge each patient how it is. And, you know, I don't think, I think there's willingness in a group to do something like that, but I don't know if we can do um, with stenting the same thing that we do with opiate admissions or ordering post-op renal ultrasounds where we set a specific number because every patient is going to be different. Yeah, to, to that end, um, uh, Phil uh, um, Hookstra actually just asked a question too or, or um, chimed in that his rationale for stent placement is based on the degree of ureteral trauma. And he makes the important distinction that things that we do to the ureter uh, during surgery, regardless of whether a stent is placed, can impact the patient experience. So if you have a ureter that's quite traumatized from dilation or scope passage, that can certainly cause symptoms, whether the patient is stented or unstented. And again, um, uh, maybe not the patient that we're picking uh, as someone that would be in that unstented or consider omission cohort, but a very good point. Um, and then Hector Pimentel asked the question, do we believe that using a small optical ureteroscope can prevent the need for stent placement? Um, I'll, I'll tell you, uh, and maybe John or David can chime in, um, our flexible ureteroscopes uh, are relatively standard in size. Um, and so I definitely think that if you're reaching for a older generation digital ureteroscope that's approaching that eight and a half, nine French size, uh, you will both run into issues with, you know, impassable ureteroscopy being, meaning not able to place it and potentially initiating more trauma, which would again, take that patient out of the uncomplicated and onto the complicated side where you might uh, really be considering stent placement. But I think with the modern um, fiber optic ureteroscopes, which are sitting at around seven and a half French, uh, the Boston Scientific Lithoview, which is similar, and then many of the newer digital scopes, you can you can avoid that issue of ureteral trauma. Um, just so I catch all of them, 
and and thanks for piping into the chat. Jay Lonsway, hope you're doing well. Um, mentioned that he's not sure there would ever be the availability of photos that could depict a degree of ureteral injury and whether or not a stent should be placed. That's a fascinating point that you bring up. Um, later on in the meeting, uh, Dr. Ghani Kershid is going to be talking about a couple of trials that are upcoming within Music Rocks, which we're uh, very excited about. Uh, and one of the ideas that we've played around with is that kind of Pandora's box of uh, correlating the degree of ureteral injury, which I may view differently as Jay, which may be differently than Hector, which may be viewed differently than Philip, um, and whether or not to place a stent. We don't really have anything like that right now. Um, and I think that you bring up a really interesting point because we all probably have varying degrees of comfort in that setting. Um, but uh, what are your thoughts on any of the comments that have been brought up, uh, our, our fellow panelists, David, or, or um, uh, what do you think? Um, the one, the one question about, you know, the smaller scopes is, you know, is interesting because, you know, we'd all love to use smaller instruments that it, it, it allows us to do more things like that. But, you know, we do have to remember since we all practice at different hospital systems, you know, a different system might have older equipment and might not be willing to buy new equipment and, and things like that. But, um, it, you know, it's, it's definitely an interesting point. Yeah, and we just got a comment from Brian Lane, which I think underscores a lot of work that we're doing here and, and is, is cool. So I'm just going to read it verbatim. And he mentions that, you know, he always stents. Um, and there are other urologists that do that in a collaborative. Um, but his comment is that it's compelling to see that there are urologists that stent in a fraction of cases. And that gives them some greater confidence in omitting one selectively. So I think that can be a way that we circle the wagons, right? much like we talked about in the opiate space, it's not going to be a 0% stenting rate that we're shooting for. But as we begin to collect more pro data, and this will be a great segue into the second half of the talk where we're kind of pleading with folks to, to join pro, I think that we will really find some compelling data around how not only stent placement impacts the patient, but also their willingness to potentially have other procedures. And those are all things that we're hoping to capture within pro. Our primary goal has to be to keep patients safe and stent when appropriate. Um, but I think I think that uh, Brian's comment really can segue us into the second half of this talk as we measure that more. So thanks as always for that great and robust discussion. What we're gonna be talking about now is how we can build on the Rocks Pro Pilot. I think we'd all agree that one of the greatest aspects of music is its diversity, which lends itself to being generalizable. So what we're seeking is collaborative wide participation in Rocks Pro. I think this will be critical to our ability to measure and improve patient care. We plan a similar cadence of questionnaires that would be administered online at baseline, seven to 10 days after surgery and four to six weeks following surgery. But I think a key caveat here is that we're going to be including shockwave lithotripsy patients in addition to ureteroscopy patients. Like anything that we do, our patient advocate feedback is vital. Um, these uh, questionnaires and the Rocks Pro infrastructure have been vetted uh, and um, uh, adjusted by three of our patient advocates that you see listed here. And without their help, I believe that we'd be missing the mark as far as measuring patient reported outcomes. So how will Pro currently look? As you saw earlier, we'll be including the promise questionnaires to assess pain, intensity, and interference. We also understand that there are unique aspects to stent placement, namely lower urinary tract symptoms that we'll be measuring with a, with a different questionnaire. 
We're going to be getting at patient satisfaction, which I think will be very powerful for us as urologists to understand how our patients are perceiving um, the outcomes of their own surgeries. And we'll also be asking some questions around stent utilization. So in grand total, this will be 26 questions administered at three time points to patients. And how will this work? How will we capture this? At a participating practice level, nothing really changes. So a scheduler or an administrator will schedule a ureteroscopy or shockwave lithotripsy patient, and in doing so, enter patient contact information into the registry. The registry will then send out baseline and seven to 10-day and four to six-week post-op questionnaires via email with automated reminder emails, and the patient is on the hook to complete questionnaires electronically. I think it's important to distinguish this from pro for prostate in that there are no phone calls and no mailings. We're trying to be as uh, parsimonious and, and uh, acknowledging of everyone's time as possible here. So this is a fully automated process. So where do we currently stand as far as enrollment? We have four participating sites since November 2020 being Michigan Medicine, MIU, Spectrum, and Neurologic Clinic of Southeast Michigan. We've enrolled more than 330 patients into ROX Pro with a 55% baseline completion rate and a 35% overall response rate, meaning baseline seven to 10 days and four to six weeks, which I think is pretty tremendous for a fully automated system. So what are our next steps? We're working hard on how we can aggregate these physician reports to feedback to physicians, much like we do at the collaborative wide meetings and provide information on key metrics such as our opiate free pathway and stenting rates and implications. We're also working on generating a ROX Pro summary that patients can visualize. In the future, we're hoping to have a texting feature online, which will make these uh, uh, access to these questionnaires even easier for patients. And please take down this last bit. If any of you are interested in participating or implementing ROX Pro, please contact Mahin Mears at the email seen there. We are definitely moving forward with trying to establish this as a QI participation metric as well understanding how vital it will be to our future success and understanding the patient-reported experience. So next, I'm going to segue over to Dr. Brian Seifman, the clinical champion from the Michigan Institute of Urology, and he's going to tell us in the next few slides how easy it's been to implement ROX Pro within his practice. So thank you very much, Brian. Thank you, Casey, and thank you for the opportunity to speak today. So at Michigan Institute of Urology, as part of the pilot program, we've had four urologists that have participated. So far, we've had over 100 patients that have been enrolled into ROX Pro, of which 47% have completed the baseline questionnaire, 40% have done the 7 to 10 day, and about a third have done the 4 to 6 week questionnaire. Our overall response rate has been 26%. Now, we're very proud that we've had that much response rate, but we certainly think that we can do better than that. So, one of the things that I wanted to address too is the feasibility of pro implementation. And I can tell you that from my perspective, there's been minimal to no physician involvement. So when I board a case for ureteroscopy, my scheduler simply send an email to the patient. And that's the entire amount of work that we need to do. So from a physician standpoint, no, no additional work and same for our administrative staff, there's been very limited burden on them. The questionnaires are automatic generated. They just come directly from email, so it, no reminders that we need to do, no extra work. So how can we make it better? We need to improve our response rates, and that can be very easy simply by the physicians telling the patients that they're going to be recovering, receiving these emails. I have not done that at all so far, and we still have a 26% response rate, so 
clearly once we start telling the patients to expect it, they're going to be much more likely to fill it out. We're also going to be disseminating the ROCS Pro brochures in the office as well that should help to generate more interest from patient perspective to get them to fill out the studies. Finally, we'll be expanding the program in order to get more physicians involved. We obviously have a large group and we have a lot of people that uh, are excited and willing to participate. Thank you for your time. We'd be happy to open it up to any questions you may have. Thanks a lot, Brian, uh, for your participation uh, and your willingness to share the data from MIU. So this panel uh, includes Brian, as we talked about Raquel uh, Welcome, who is uh, one of the abstractors uh, with the MIU practice. Uh, we've got Dennis Sitek, who's one of our uh, uh, patient advocates. Uh, you saw his, his mug on one of our slides in the early going, and then uh, Kershid Ghani, who needs no introduction. So, um, you know, it's really easy for us as urologists to say, oh, yeah, this doesn't impact my practice whatsoever. But we're not the ones that are that are kind of uh, boots on the ground doing the nitty gritty. So maybe, Raquel, you could kick off with us and really give us like the lie detector test for Brian. Is this really <laughs> that's making a lot more work for you and, and Brian doesn't feel that? Can you tell us a bit about that? Um, actually, I think it saves us a ton of work um, as far as um, getting the information from patients. We don't have to do that. It's really simple. They collect the patient's email at check-in when they check into the office, and it kind of saves us a step as far as contacting the patient. We don't have to do that. So it's kind of nice, actually. So Brian made a really interesting point in the, in the talk, and I think we're going to begin to do this um, in the office, hopefully, but you interface with patients. Um, do you think there'd be an opportunity there as this program grows for abstractors and administrators and practice managers to be uh, able to say, hey, this is a really cool program. Your doctors really want to learn about what's happening after ureteroscopy and shockwave. Is that an area that you could help? Um, so as an abstractor, we don't necessarily have contact with the patient. Um, our surgical schedulers and boarders <clears throat> do that. But I think it would be kind of interesting to be able to do that to kind of give them a heads up and let them know what's going on and what to expect. Yeah, and I think you bring up an interesting point, right? Each practice is different. It may be a scheduler at one institution at, at MIU. It's obviously, it's slightly different. Um, so Dennis, question for you. Um, you. You've seen much of this, or at least the structure of PRO as we currently see it. As a patient, how do you view this? Your doctor's trying to understand more about your patient journey. How does that impact you? Well, hopefully it doesn't impact me anymore, but <laughs> uh, going from what I've been through and, and what I see the mission of rocks, uh, it's a valuable thing in gathering as much information from as many patients as possible. That's why that 26% number looks ripe for uh, further uh, harvesting, uh, getting a lot more people to participate in that. But the more data the doctors have, I think it's going to lead to a more consistent set of standards for how the doctors go forward and how they treat each patient. You will never get a consistent treatment for every patient, but at least it'll give, a, I think, a consistent method for generating the treatment for each patient. I mean, the statistic here earlier about 100% of some doctors stenting, I mean, I don't think that should happen. I mean, not every patient requires a stent, at least from what I've been hearing over the several meetings. So I think uh, 
the goal again should be to reduce the number of stents if it's possible. Uh, but more information is going to give uh, all you doctors the the tools to do that. And again, I think what you can comment on, having been on the inside of this a bit more and and helping us to vet the questionnaires, do you think we hit the mark? Uh, I guess time will tell with hitting patients up at three time points, baseline seven to 10 days and four to six weeks and and going through a subset of questions that you know in total is between 20 and 26 questions. I'm sure that'll vary patient to patient, but what's your general reaction to that? I think it's the right thing to do. The doctors, I think, need to stress, somebody earlier mentioned that uh, we need to stress to the patient how important it is, and the doctors do need to do that. Uh, I don't think those questionnaires are probably going to take three or four minutes to, to complete and turn in. I don't think that's too big of a ask for the patient to do. And if he knows it or she knows that it's going to help benefit more patients down the line, it, it's, it's a good goal to shoot for. Yeah, I'm taking notes here because uh, I, I agree with you. I mean, the engagement starts at the front end. We are meeting these patients in the office, and I think we miss an opportunity as urologists and clinicians if we don't let the patient know, number one, that this is coming so that they're, you know, they're not surprised or don't ignore it. We all get a lot of junk, but also that it, you know, we're seeking to understand the journey so that we can benefit other patients down the line, maybe not that patient, um, but th that's all really good uh, insight. Brian, I thought maybe you could mention a bit um, how you've seen uh, or perceived this sort of thing uh, impacting your clinical practice. W would this maybe change decision-making in the future? Are there parts of it that you're excited about? Can you comment on that? Well, I think that's the goal is to change behavior. So as Dennis was talking about, if we know who is having more symptoms, if the stents are causing more pain, and we can actually document that a better than just ER visits, because we, we look at ER visits, 7%, 7.5% overall, that's low. We want it to be better, obviously. But if you have 80% of those people are in pain for that week time that they have their stent in, and we have that documented and that they can do so much better without it, I think the only way to know is you have to have the data to collect it. And just following up you know, on uh, Dennis's other point about the 26%, honestly, I didn't even realize that we had already started the pilot program. So I wasn't mentioning it to patients at all, which is, of course, my fault. Uh, but just like with the prostatectomy database and the pro for that is you mention it to more patients. If you tell them to expect it, that we're trying to collect data, we're trying to learn, you know, also the participation goes up dramatically. So I do think that as we as physicians talk to the patients about it more, I mean, I'm excited that I think those numbers are going to go up dramatically. So we just got a comment in the chat from Tracy Hamilton. Thanks, Tracy. She's one of the abstractors for comprehensive urology. She brings up a key point, which is, what are we doing for those patients that don't have email? Um, those people would be missed. Um, and there are other people that will be missed, too. It's not a perfect system. So we've learned from several of our participating practices you know, that there are varying portions of patients that are um, urgent cases. So meaning they weren't scheduled in the office and then done you know, within five to seven days where they could potentially get that baseline questionnaire. So there will be a population of patients that are missed. Um, we are, along with the prostate group, working on a texting feature. Uh, so most people have phones that can receive SMS texts. So our hope would be that we can broaden things um, 
in that direction. But you're 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 right. You bring up a good point. Uh, those patients that don't have an email address are not going to be people that are going to be enrolled in in Pro for Rocks. Casey, um, go ahead. Do you mind if I get just a, a couple of comments based on what Dennis said, which is, and I think the group, you know, the collaborative need to know that the the pro that everyone is hopefully going to use as you expand the program is with the feedback of Dennis and Mike and Sandra and Dennis and, and their comments on certain questions, Brian, led to changing of some of the questions to make it more relevant to what they thought was the patient perspective. I think one of the things, uh, Brian, I, I think as all of us, the urologists who are doing this, that satisfaction question on were you satisfied with your surgery? Were you happy with the outcome? Whether you had a stent or not, that's agnostic. I think it's a really important, as, as a urologist, I can't wait to see the responses, right? Because if I feel that there's a lot of patients unsatisfied, like what Dave Wensler said, there's so many things going on with surgery, large scopes, small scopes, this maneuver, that maneuver. So I think I firmly believe the data collection that Dennis is talking about the, the methodology which Raquel said is not too it's not too difficult. It's really quite simple. Will be a foundation for us to to get better. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't say it any better. You just said there, Kirsten. This has been a been a labor of love for us, and we're really excited um, to get more participation. Uh, like I said in the earlier part of the pre-recorded section. The coolest part or one of the coolest parts about music is, is our diversity, a diversity in thought, diversity in practice, diversity in location and region. And without everybody, uh, I don't think that we'll have nearly as uh, powerful uh, a set of the patient experience uh, as we could otherwise. Um, so again, I really appreciate everyone's um, discussion. We're going to close with just a final slide here. If that's Can I say something, please? Oh, yeah. Go ahead, Dennis, please. Just, just one last comment. Somebody said earlier there's over 100 people on the uh, meeting tonight. To me, that's very impressive that that many people will take a couple hours out of their evening to take part in this. That's That shows that this is working. Thanks, Dennis. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dennis. And thank you, Raquel. Raquel, the, it, the program will fall without your hard work. It's you are the foundation of the whole program. Thank you. Thank you. So can we pull up that last slide? Um, so uh, this is my final plug for why we should get more practices <clears throat> to participate in pro. I think what we've underscored is that we need to better understand the patient experience, uh, both on some of our initiatives like uh, the impact of stent omission and the opiate-free pathway. But as Kirsch had said, really understanding the impact of our treatment choice. Shockwave is something that we collect a ton of data on, and it's not something that we're really doing uh, uh, too much with right now. And I think it's a very powerful way to compare uh, the juxtaposition of ureteroscopy and shockwave. So uh, to close, um, uh, we're hoping for better patient counseling, and I think that's what we all would hope. And in the words of William Wallace, um, although he was probably yelling freedom, I'm going to you know, beat the drum to say, please join Rocks Pro. Um, and thank you for your engagement. And with that, I'm going to turn things over to Dr. Arvind George, who's going to kick off the rest of the meeting. Thanks again for attending. Wow, that was a great discussion. Really groundbreaking work from the Music Rocks group. Well, today I'll be providing an update on the progress that we have made with transperineal biopsy and what, we've, what we have learned from our experience to date. 
Since the introduction of augmented prophylaxis, we have seen a decline in infectious hospitalizations. We subsequently initiated the needle disinfection technique with either formalin or alcohol in between each biopsy call. And as a result, are able to avoid more than 50 infectious hospitalizations each year. And while the national rate hovers around 1.5%, music has been able to achieve a rate of 0.63%, a testament to the commitment of practices within the collaborative. But can we do better? In 2019, we started our transperineal biopsy initiative, aspiring to reduce our rates as low as 7.5 per 10,000 biopsies that has been reported in the literature. To date, the music rate of infectious hospitalizations for transperineal biopsy is 0.26%. Today, I'll focus on some of the questions that have arisen as part of the transperineal uh, biopsy uh, program. One is the patient's experience. Second is uh, cancer detection rates between transperineal and transrectal biopsy. Uh, Post-procedural outcomes. Uh, understanding what are some barriers to adoption and also uh, identifying from some strategies to, for implementation to overcome those barriers. Patient experience was initially highlighted as a concern, specifically the tolerability of transperineal biopsy under local anesthesia. At participating sites, patients completed a survey immediately post-biopsy regarding pain scores using a visual analog pain score, uh, as you see here in the bottom of the slide, um, across the listed domains. We conservatively selected uh, a one-point difference in scores to be a clinically meaningful difference. Among over 1,000 patients, we noted that transperineal biopsy was more painful, but that difference was less than one point. And this was driven by a difference in the administration of local anesthetic, while after the block was given, pain during the prostate sampling remained similar. Ultimately, though slightly more uncomfortable, transperineal biopsy is well-tolerated under local anesthetic. Our own initial data suggested a lower cancer detection rate for transperineal biopsy. However, our aggregate data now reaffirms that of what we see from multiple other studies supporting a similar cancer detection rate between transrectal and transperineal biopsy, in our case using the music transperineal biopsy template seen here. The overall cancer detection rate for transperineal biopsy was 56% versus 53% for transrectal biopsy with no significant difference. The main advantage of a transperineal biopsy is to minimize the risk of infectious hospitalizations. As mentioned previously, in Michigan, only 0.2% of patients are admitted with a presumed infectious complication, such as sepsis or febrile UTI following a transperineal biopsy, versus 0.63% for transrectal biopsy. There was no difference in non-infectious admissions, such as bleeding or alternative causes. We have tried to better understand barriers to implementation, understanding that this may differ across practice and provider. We administered a survey to music and PERC urologists, that's the Pennsylvania Urologic Regional Collaborative, to assess adoption, attitudes, and barriers to implementation of transperineal biopsy under local anesthesia. The three most common advantages cited, and, and uh, respondents could uh, select from multiple choices at the same time, 
for the for the, the three more sided advantages for the transperineal approach was uh, of course reduce infections, but also uh, uh, potential for an improved cancer detection rate, likely due to improved anterior gland sampling, and also improved antibiotic stewardship. The greatest barriers to implementation included access to the equipment required, concerns regarding the duration of the procedure, and the patient's experience. I will say that the average time for a transperineal biopsy, uh, once proficient, is usually less than 10 minutes. So how can we address these potential barriers? New competition has entered the space. Uh, here on your top right, you see a novel transperineal guide called the Surefire. Um, below that is the use of simple angiocats. Um, and um, to the left, bottom left, you see the, a non-disposable needle guide uh, using the MindRay ultrasound. Uh, this procedure can also be done under direct, uh, with just direct skin puncture. Now, transperineal biopsy uh, can also be performed with a standard side-fire transrectal probe, uh, similar to the one that we're used to using for a transrectal biopsy. The only difference is, is that the, the view can be slightly disorienting uh, in the beginning due to short sagittal crystals that are uh, uh, convex in, in, in array. We do still continue to offer hands-on proctoring for sites who are ready to get started. And to, potentially use, uh, and to potentially use a risk-adapted approach. Also, training videos remain online, including videos of probe preparation, transperineal local anesthetic block, and biopsy utilizing different uh, TP techniques. A new addition to the website is a patient educational video. We have been working on this for a period of time, and we've received input from providers, nursing, and patients throughout its development. The goal of the video is to familiarize patients with the potential advantages of transperineal biopsy, preparation for prior to the procedure, and what to expect after the biopsy is completed. If you scan this QR code here with your phone camera, it will take you directly to the video. Alternatively, you can uh, visit the website right here. Now, to a certain degree in the state of Michigan, we are victims of our own success. With augmented prophylaxis, culture-directed antibiotics, and needle disinfection, our rates of infectious hospitalizations are extremely low. However, among practices that have been trained on TP biopsy, we see two things on this graph here. One is, is that practices don't do every biopsy transperineally, and those that are trained eventually convert a greater proportion of their biopsies to the transperineal approach over time. One practical solution I would suggest is to consider a risk-adapted approach. Offer transperineal biopsy to those who may have uh, multidrug-resistant rectal swabs, who are immunocompromised, those with a history of post-biopsy uh, sepsis or infection previously. This could optimize the biopsy approach to the patients who are most likely to benefit while reducing the impact of additional time or cost that, that can be accrued with the transperineal approach. Now, you may be familiar with this slide. We presented this when we first introduced transperineal biopsy to the collaborative. To date, we have made significant pro progress regarding initial concerns that were raised. The advantages continue to be a reduced risk of complications, improved antibiotic stewardship, and synergy with other, other procedures employing the same skill set, such as rectal hydrogel spacer. The physician time during a procedure continues to de decrease with increasing experience and uh, has a relatively short uh, learning curve of 10 procedures. 
With alternative strategies such as using available ultrasound equipment or lower cost needle guides, we will continue to see a reduction in the overall cost and access to the appropriate equipment. What we have determined in the classic music data-driven approach is that there is no difference in cancer detection rates compared to transrectal biopsy and that it is well tolerated under local anesthesia in the office setting. I encourage practices to consider a risk adaptive approach and reach out to the coordinating center to help your practice find a solution that makes sense uh, for you. And I'll now turn it over to Dr. Christian Pavlovich. He is a professor of urology at uh, Johns Hopkins and will be sharing with us today their experience with the transition from transrectal to transcranial biopsy. Thank you. Thank you, Arvin. Uh, pleasure to be here and pleasure to address uh, the Music Collaborative. Uh, I'd like to talk about integrating transperineal biopsy into clinical practice based on our experience at Johns Hopkins. Um, uh, I'll start with, again, just reminding the group uh, of the obvious uh, goals of prostate biopsy. Find clinically significant cancer, avoid clinically insignificant cancer, minimize complications, and minimize pain. Um, I think to improve the detection of clinically significant cancer, uh, I would say that incorporating novel biomarkers and risk calculators into your practice is probably paramount. And I would add that using MRI prior to prostate biopsy is also paramount. Um, I won't go into this much, but just to show a sample of a biomarker we use, the Prostate Health Index, which has been shown to improve upon both the PCPT and the ERSPC risk calculators to help detect not just cancer, but aggressive cancer. Um, this is something we did where we looked at uh, various iterations of uh, the risk calculators and different biomarkers and found that PHI and PHI density per se was the most accurate biomarker for predicting clinically significant cancer in the context also of MRI and prior negative biopsy status. Now on to MRI. Obviously, in many European countries and now in the 21 NCCN guidelines, uh, MRI is being recommended prior to biopsy for men with elevated PSA. Uh, and I know in many countries, only a positive MRI will result in a biopsy recommendation at intermediate PSA levels, like in the gray area of 4 to 10. This is due to data from trials, such as those from the NCI, and level one evidence from the UK precision trial. And not to go into it at length, but the NCI study from 2015 uh, took about 1,000 men, all received systematic biopsy plus targeted biopsy, and the targeted biopsy detected 30% more high-grade cancers, 17% fewer low-risk cancers, uh, with a caveat that MRI missed about 15% of what were considered high-grade cancers. Now, the UK took it a step further and took 500 men and randomized them. This was actually uh, a multinational trial uh, to getting a pre-biopsy MRI or not. Uh, the MRI group, 72% of them were biopsied because they had targets the remaining 28% were not biopsy. And in the non-MRI group, all received a systematic biopsy. Well, if you look at the bottom of the slide, the trifecta outcome here was in favor of MRI. There were fewer biopsies in the MRI group. There was a more clinically significant cancer found in that group. And there was less insignificant cancer in that group. What was the yield of the targeting? Well, the region of interest, uh, based on their PIRADs of three, four, five, showed significantly increasing detection of clinically significant cancer in the targets. Now, as to approaches to targeting biopsy, there's the cognitive approach and there's the MRI fusion software approach. 
um, these regions of interest can really be targeted either way. You can either go cognitively. Uh, this, I think, requires a biplanar ultrasound probe with visual targeting used. Or you can go with electronic software fusion. You can use a conventional, say, end-fire truss probe if you're going transrectally. Uh, but then you need a complex software and hardware package for image fusing, which can be quite costly. Uh, both require MRI readers and contours, and both require a significant amount of instruction and practice. Are they comparable? Well, a systematic review and meta-analysis published just this year uh, comparing MRI fusion and cognitive fusion really showed that the overall uh, odds ratios were one comparing the two for cancer detection or significant cancer detection. And there was a growing consensus in this meta-analysis and review that these modalities for targeting are comparable in expert hands. So back to the goals, find clinically significant cancer, check, avoid clinically insignificant cancer, check. As we've discussed, image-guided biopsy and novel biomarkers can help in this regard, but biopsy approach, in other words, transperineal, et cetera, may help as well. And how about our other goals? To minimize complications and to minimize pain. Um, which brings us to why even consider switching to transperineal. Well, Number one, because transrectal biopsy predisposes to infectious complications, as we all know, with sepsis rates in the 0.3 to 3.1%, uh, even one sepsis is unacceptable and can be life-ending. Because the use of antibiotics for transrectal biopsy can breed development of resistance and other issues. And finally, because transperineal biopsy bypasses the rectal flora, reduces infectious complications, even in the absence of any antibiotics. So in terms of safety, another um, look, uh, review of meta-analysis compared complication rates and outcomes of more than 1,600 patients who either underwent either transrectal or transperineal biopsy. There was a five-fold reduction in the rate of post-biopsy fever in those who underwent transperineal biopsy. There was a lower risk of rectal bleeding with transperineal biopsy, and there was not an increased rate of acute urinary retention or hematuria with transperineal biopsy. And would this be done under local anesthesia? And the answer is yes. It looked like the pain scores were highest basically with sort of the probe uh, and with placing the anesthesia in. But actually, the biopsy itself ultimately was tolerated. Um, in this case, no access sheath was used. There were multiple needle sticks on each side. We're using access sheets now so that there's really just two 15-gauge holes in the patient's perineum. So pain is, is probably even less than in this study. How about transperineal and cancer detection? Well, I'm going to just give you three references here. One review of 1,000 RP specimens showed that transrectal and transperineal identified cancers of similar size, stage, and significance, but the TP approach detected proportionally more anterior tumors and found them in a smaller size and stage. Scott also showed in a different study that men with transperineal biopsy were more accurately graded uh, than men with transperineal rectal biopsy at subsequent RP. In other words, there was better correlation and less upgrading. This was echoed in a prospective randomized study done by Takanaka while comparing the two biopsy types. He found that the overall positivity for cancer was similar by approach. However, in the gray area of PSA 4 to 10, significantly more cores were positive in the transperineal group, especially among the transition zone cores. But let's be honest, transperineal biopsies here, that's why Dr. Jordan invited me. That's why Dr. Smurgeon invited me to talk to you guys. And it really has clear advantages. We don't want to be left as the ostrich in the sand 
uh, bearing one's head while the rest of the world passes us by and still doing what is affectionately known as the transfecal biopsy um, by our, our uh, folks on the other side of the pond. Um, now, how do you transition from the transrectal approach to transperineal? And I would say, you just have to take the plunge. And I was a big skeptic and I was doing transrectal MRI guided Euronav software image fusion biopsies up until three to six months ago, because I just didn't believe I could get accurate targeting cognitively through a new approach with a different probe I wasn't used to. And having done it for three to six months, I can tell you, take the plunge. It is incredibly rewarding and incredibly accurate. Um, it can be done freehand or freehand with a needle guide. Uh, we use the precision point system, uh, just like in prostate biopsy done transrectally. There's no need for a stepper, although those are available. Uh, TP biopsy is compatible with either cognitive fusion or software-based MRI fusion. And I'm still at the cognitive fusion phase, although I'm transitioning slowly to MRI software fusion. TP can be done using just local anesthetic in the clinic in almost all patients, and certainly in as many patients as one could do transrectally in the clinic. Um, the Precision Point Transparent Access System, or PPTAS, is a method of stabilizing the biopsy needle using an access sheet fixed in the sagittal ultrasound plane. Our preference is to use this freehand technique with this needle guide, such that you can essentially almost always have the needle in your view without rotating your wrist and having to look left and right. And that's made by perineal logic. Um, this is just the, showing you the components of the PPTAS, uh, clamp rail subassembly, a needle carriage, and then a 15-gauge access needle. So one ends up with a 15-gauge access hole on the left and then one on the right of middle. You clamp this onto your ultrasound probe, a biplanar probe, and you put it into the rectum. Uh, this is just an image of the probe in the rectum. The access needle is pointing to where one is going to pierce the perineal skin, and that's where I put a subcutaneous wheel of lidocaine. Then one goes ahead and puts a deeper wheel of lidocaine, uh, and I'll show that with a deeper needle going here. Uh, and this is a little video of a deeper lidocaine injection going through the levator, uh, injecting lidocaine, have the patient cough, you insert the needle right through, that's the patient coughing. And once you're through the levator, you start dumping your lidocaine, slowly withdraw the needle, put a lot on the outside of the levator where the pudendal nerves run, and then terminate there and move on to the other side. 10 to 20 cc's of lidocaine per side. You then push the access trocar in and do all your biopsies on one side, and then take it out, rotate, and do it on the other side. This is a view of actually the access trocar 15 gauge or seen on ultrasound as you look through the sagittal aspect. Now, the layout's gonna be a little different. You're gonna biopsy peripheral zone preferentially going from six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11 o'clock and going six, five, four, three, two, one, uh, as high as you want. And of course, with targeting. This is, of course, a slightly different template than was used transrectally. And this is really the, the important slide. With a biplanar probe pushed in far, you can see the sagittal view on the left, see the needle going right anteriorly into a target. But when you pull the probe out, you can see exactly where the needle was deposited on your usual axial, axial plane, showing you that you actually got the anterior horn and or the target in this case. Now, what's our Hopkins experience? Well, until 2018, as I said, dominant transrectal. We incorporated targeting 2014, transperineal in 2017, and over the next three years, 
This has become the dominant way we do it, primarily using cognitive fusion, but now also with some urinav MRI fusion. We use a BK biplanar ultrasound probe. We use both sagittal and axial imaging at the same time, which allows for good cognitive targeting of our lives. We use the PP test for accuracy. Some prefer an angiocath, uh, in which case you wouldn't need the biopsy clamp, and that's going to save you the cost of that system, which is about 200 bucks. Um, what do we do with a positive MRI? Well, we target pyrans three, four, and five lesions with three cores per region of interest. For a negative MRI, we do a systematic biopsy. And we almost always do a systematic biopsy, even if we have targets after we've done the target. Uh, I've shown you the template we use. Fox Chase also has a template where you go deeper into the prostate if you have very large glands. Um, uh, again, one can do 12 needles, one can do 14, 16, 18, whatever you need to do to get good coverage of the anterior and posterior parts, and then go around the clock uh, inferiorly, laterally, and superiorly. Here's just a picture of a urinav target, prostate contoured, target contoured by radiologists. And this is basically me looking at the MRI, scrolling in and out, looking at the live ultrasound, scrolling in and out with the biplanar probe using sagittal and axial imaging at the same time, and doing a targeted biopsy. Um, in two dimensions, I confirmed that my needle is in the sagittal plane where I want it, and in the actual plane where I want it. And if not, I'll either call that core, uh, you know, a systematic core, or I will call it a targeted core, or I'll call it lateral if it ends up lateral, or posterior if it ends up a little more posterior than I wanted. Another picture of that, where you can see the dot, which is the needle in the axial view here, and the line, which is the needle in the sagittal view here. Briefly, because I want to get on to Q&A, we have several publications regarding our cognitive MRI fusion program. But in the first 95 patients, 87% of our targets were positive, and almost 70% of the targets had risk-grade cancer found. All right, and this yield of pyrans 3, 4, and 5 is exactly a mirror image of what was found in the precision trial, which I showed before. Uh, the bar graphs are just constructed differently. We also have only one out of, of our patients receive antibiotics. Over 90% were done with local anesthetic, and there was essentially zero infectious complications. Looking at our active surveillance cohort, um, average age of 67, these are all grade group one men. They get surveillance and MRI biopsies every one to three years. 17% uh, upgraded, but 21% of the upgrades were found in the transperineal group, and only 15% were found in men who got the transrectal biopsy. We actually controlled for a variety of factors, um, and it looked like the transperineal approach was independently predictive of upgrading, i.e. finding more significant cancer, as were uh, these other factors listed here. Moving forward, I'd say the benefits of transparent biopsy to patients are crystal clear. Equivalent or better cancer detection, local anesthesia is sufficient, decreased complications, and dramatically de decreased life-threatening complication rates. Performing a transparent biopsy in the outpatient clinic setting under local is not only possible, but very practical. Uh, the precision point system and a biplanar probe are extremely helpful and easy to use adjuncts to accurate transperineal biopsy. And combining MRI with this approach, I think, is the present and foreseeable future of prostate biopsy. I would say first, obtain a biplanar ultrasound probe and familiarize yourself with its advantages. The BK is an excellent one. I'd say secondly, try the perineologic PP test system to help stabilize your needle 
in the sagittal ultrasound plane. And last, thirdly, I'd really watch some videos. I'd watch Dr. George's YouTube video on transperineal biopsy, and I'd go to perineologic.com and watch their videos. And finally, there's nothing wrong with inviting an expert for hands-on demos on how to biopsy quickly and efficiently in the transperineal approach. We had Dr. Alloway come down, who developed the PP task, and he was extremely helpful with getting us going. Uh, and I can tell you, I've gone from completely uncomfortable with this approach six months ago to not going back to transrectal. Um, anyway, I want to end there. I want to thank Dr. George for the invitation, and Dr. Smurgeon as well, and open things up for a QA. and I appreciate it. Great. Thank you, everybody from the collaborative for joining us. And thank you, Dr. Pavlovich. I'm going to actually, uh, he's not off the hook just yet. So we're going to bring him back uh, as part of our, uh, as part of our panel. In addition to uh, Tammy Knuth, she's one of our uh, nurses who do a large proportion of our biopsy teaching uh, for our patients that we care for. Um, I'll also be inviting Dr. Ryan Nelson, um, who is a urologist at uh, MIU who performs transperineal biopsy and getting his experience in the community-based setting. And also I'll be inviting uh, uh, Mr. Philip Clemens. He's a patient that I've had. He's one of our patient advocates who uh, I've had the pleasure of taking care of. And uh, certainly I would say one of the most important members in our panel. Uh, so I'd like to welcome everybody. And we'll, uh, we have some questions that have been coming in uh, via the chat. And so we'll, we'll start with that. So um, one of the questions that we had was, how many prostate biopsies are we doing in immunocompromised patients? Um, so I would say that you know, immunocompromised can be a, a, relative, a relative term. Uh, there are patients who are you know, truly immunosuppressed, so for, for example, those who are on immuno, chronic immunosuppressants or steroids, uh, but there are also other patients who may be um, you know, diabetics and other things which have a relative, uh, they can be in a relative immunocompromised state. Uh, for me now, initially when we first started, I, I employed a little bit more of a risk-adapted approach uh, where, where we didn't have the complete resources or structure to be able to do it. We were focusing on, um, on those patients who had prior sepsis or those patients who were immunocompromised. Uh, recent joint replacements, uh, those kind of things. But I would say the truly immunocompromised patients are likely a, a more of a minority uh, in our practice. Uh, Dr. Pavlovich, is that kind of similar for yourself? Yeah, I, I would say uh, we don't get a whole lot of that. It's, it's uncommon to be looking for um, prostate cancer uh, of low-medium risk, you know, uh, on the, on the pre-biopsy stratification scales in that kind of a patient. It, it happens sometimes. You'll get the patient admitted in the hospital for something like lymphoma, and then someone checks the PSA and it's 78, and you're sort of stuck, and you're, you're hoping that that was a recent catheterization, and it wasn't. So it'll happen. I agree with you. It's it's very um, difficult term to define, but, but there are, I think, indications for using antibiotics even in a transperineal biopsy. And someone who you think is at, certainly at risk for systemic infection. There's nothing wrong with, as well as a, a sterile skin prep and meticulous technique, giving a dose of your choice, you know, cephalosporin or, or other. Um, I think that uh, another- Yeah, yeah. And I think also if someone has had, for example, a recent prostatitis or UTI, you can imagine there's still something in the prostate that could be get into the bloodstream despite no transfecal approach. So 
yeah, those were my comments. Yeah, I guess there's always also the risk that you can, you know, hit the urethra and into the urinary tract. And so we tend to get a urinalysis um, as part of the standard uh, immediately pr uh, prior to doing the biopsy. Kind of along those lines, Dr. Nelson, um, you know, what proportion of patients do you do transperineal biopsy on overall, regardless of, it being, of a patient being immunocompromised or not? Uh, um, how, how often do you do it? And also, how do you select you know, who you would offer transperineal biopsy to versus transrectal biopsy? What are the considerations in your practice? Um, speaking from a private practice perspective, it's a little bit difficult uh, with that transferring um, from transrectal to transperitoneal biopsy. So I got to tell you, I'm a little bit slow to start. I'm only about 10% or less of my patients getting transperitoneal um, biopsies. And that's just because of the time allotted during my day. So if I have a, a gentleman that's number one, my case selection is a little bit worried or has had a prior bad experience with a um, transrectal biopsy, then those are the cases that I've selected to do a transperitoneal. And in my, uh, in my office schedule, I will block an extra, you know, maybe 10 or 15 minutes to do that biopsy because um, I'm doing it by myself and I do it with, um, a 16 gauge angiocath and to feed that needle back into the angiocath on either side takes, you know, a couple extra seconds because I don't want to create any punctures of anything else. So it takes me just a few extra minutes. So I, I allow my time. And so that's how I'd go about my patient selection. But in the future, I think that I will be going to more uh, transperitoneal uh, biopsies in, in general. And I hope to one day be at almost 100%. And, and I did not pay you to say that. Is that correct? You did not pay me to say that. I, I okay. believe it's a, it's a better <laughs> technique. I think that the thing is, is like I am so used to doing transrectal. It, it, it's so quick and so fast. Um, the problem is, is it does require the patient to come in I do do a whole hour uh, wait um, and so in patients that are, are less susceptible to infections I think it's greatly improves their overall outcome and a total experience Oh, thank you. And uh, and then I think that's a really important consideration that time is a factor, especially early on. And so, you know, not that we don't have time, time pressures in academic practice, but the reality is, is that maybe a risk adapted approach may be the best approach. If you can't do it in everybody, you can at least identify those men who are at greatest risk of having an infection. The next couple of questions um, I'm going to ask to Tammy and, uh, and uh, uh, Mr. Clemens. Um, now, both of you have seen both sides of the equation. You've seen transrectal biopsies. You've seen transperineal biopsies. Tammy, you've, you've, you've been able to counsel men before and after. You actually see lots of patients before and after their biopsies. What are the kind of what were the what are the differences that you've seen between um, between concerns that patients have when you're counseling them and also uh, the issues that arise after biopsy? My biggest concern was the infections. That, that was one of my big concerns. And uh, also with the uh, with the TR, I, I had a little bad experience in my first one. It was, it was quite shocking to me. They, they, they did it without an MRI. Uh, you know, they, they did, did the biopsy before they did the MRI. It was a little rough on me. But uh, I... Uh, the, the TP is to me 
was uh, it was just a totally totally different. It was really a a, a good procedure. I, I I liked it very well. That was a whole lot better than the TR. Gotcha. Thank you, Tammy. Do you have do you have uh, do you have patients uh, raise specific concerns during counseling or afterwards? Do you find that there's different concerns that they have or they call with? So I would say when you, we are doing the biopsy teaching, a big concern for patients is the level of discomfort. You know, when you explain to them that the needle is going to go directly through their skin, they do have a lot of concerns. So we do our best to tell them that they will experience some discomfort with the local, um, but with the two, with first the uh, superficial local, then going deeper with the lidocaine, the patients actually have less pain with the transperineal than with they do um, with the transrectal. I think it's just important to really explain it to them first so they understand, you know, we, we don't want to say it's pain-free, but if you, you know, kind of explain to the patients what to expect, it's a lot better. And then also when you kind of explain the transperineal approach, a lot of people think that they are going to leave with an incision and a dressing. And so we do our best to tell them, nope, that's not it at all. You know, you may notice a few spots of blood on your underwear, but beyond that, um, you know, they do really well. And as far as after, I can say, you know, I've been I've been in the department for many years and um, when it was all transrectal. And when we moved to transperineal, I actually shared a lot of apprehension that, you know, patients were not going to be able to tolerate it. And surprisingly, the number of calls after transperineals you know, when it was a straight transrectal clinic, I would probably get, you know, 50% of the patients would call with, with questions. Now I would say it's very, very rare, maybe a few just to reinforce the teaching, you know, with the blood in the urine, but really patients are pretty satisfied unless uh, triage after. Great. That's that's actually really great to hear. Um, I know I know we're we're running a little bit low on time. I do want to answer one more additional question from the chat, which was: Do you notice at the time of surgery more apical or, uh, uh, apical fibrosis or or um, uh, uh, the posterior plane when you're doing a dissection during a radical prostatectomy? Do you find it any different? My personal experience, I have not actually noticed any difference at all. I would never know if they've had a transrectal or transperineal biopsy. But Dr. Pavlovich, Dr. Nelson, what are your thoughts? in your experience i i don't find that either i usually wait at least eight weeks before i do a radical prostatectomy so that inflammation whatever it may be is greatly reduced gotcha and then myself as well i, I haven't noticed a difference i think we'll maybe see some more problems at the apex potentially down the road but the rectal plane should be pretty clean once we get to patients who are who've never had a transrectal biopsy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much to our panel members. Um, I'm at, uh, this is a great discussion and we actually weren't able to make it to all the questions, um, but uh, I will turn it now over to, uh, back to Dr. Ghani uh, for the closing remarks. Thank you everybody for a great collaborative meeting. I'd like to just um, wrap up today's meeting with a couple of key takeaways and then uh, Dr. Monty's going to give some closing remarks, which I, I really want to make sure everyone stays for. There's some important closing remarks coming from Dr. Monty. Uh, I want to uh, first thank um, Dr. Brian Lane and uh, Alice for a great session uh, from the kidney group. Um, Brian spoke about the renal score and understanding complexity 
of the of the tumor and also gave a good case of a patient who he did a CT chest scan and found some metastasis which affected the the management so uh, please um, document the renal score and utilize chest imaging where appropriate uh, in the kidney session uh, Dr Patel and Dr Madman uh, spoke about their experiences around um, uh, radical prostatectomy versus um, um, uh, partial nephrectomy, and, and and Amit made a really important point about decision making and how he couldn't understand the decision making of the surgeon in in the medical note. And this is something that Dr. Monty is going to speak about uh, shortly. So stay tuned for more on that. But overall, I found the kidney session highly informative and, and great work coming that from that group. So kudos to the kidney group. Um, Casey led a fantastic session in, in the rocks, and we learned about the opiate prescription habits of, of surgeons in music, uh, the wide variation, and, and he showed us data that if we reduce some of that variation, we would prevent around 45 patients uh, becoming addicted to opioids. And so that's really powerful data for us to, to coalesce around and see if we can reduce our opiate prescription habits. Uh, Dave Wensler when asked about what we'd be at the appropriate rate, and he mentioned 10%, and I think he's right, we should try and keep that as a, as a figure and as a target for us. We had a, a session uh, on the ROCS Pro, the Patient Reported Outcome System, uh, and Brian Seifman and Raquel from MIU showed how they've implemented this system seamlessly. Uh, Raquel spoke about how easy it was, and we had some great comments from Dennis, our patient advocate, uh, patting us on the back and encouraging us to do more uh, that, you know, that our 100% stenting rates were too high, so we should be mindful about uh, stent omission. And, 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 and we did have some great comments from Lynn McCormick around this in the sense that we're not saying as a group that we want to do 100% stent omission. We should stent when we should, and we should not stent when appropriate. And then, the, as you just heard, the prostate group uh, have just been speaking about transperineal biopsy. We really want to thank Dr. Pavlovich for making the time and speaking to us as the keynote speaker. And he gave us a state-of-the-art lecture on transperineal technique and um, practice in one of the best uh, centers in the country. Arvin spoke about the new patient education video, and we heard some really important comments from our patient advocate, Philip Clemens, uh, telling us that in his experience, the transrectal was so much easier than the transperineal. So thank you, Ms. Clemens, for your uh, insights. Uh, way. wrong. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Maybe I got that wrong. But we'll, we'll, we'll forget that for now. But I'll come back to say Tammy, Tammy said 50% of patients after transrectal were calling. Were you, was that right, Tammy? I think you said that. And then but after when you implemented the transperineal route, you said that very few patients were calling with issues. So that was nice to hear. But overall, I think we've got a lot to do and we hope we can increase the uh, implementation of transperineal biopsy within mu music. So next steps, um, we'll continue to make progress on all these QI um, activities. I just would like to say, we hope to have an in-person meeting in October. We'll be sending you the details shortly. It's been a long time. We need to see everyone in person. Uh, we're all, you know, I think we're getting to the end of the webinar phase in our lives. Um, and then we hopefully will see you, some of you at the AUA, and we will have a, a music reception, hopefully there. 
we're going to make it a great event and we look forward to seeing all of you at that as well. Uh, the webinar is available as a podcast and, and you can um, uh, download it and listen to it at another time and it's also pre-recorded, it's also on the website for all our attendees to listen to. Um, one more thing, next week, Dr. George and Dr. Samergian and Dr. Peabody are leading a session on, on a skill session on high-risk prostate cancer treatment. And we have some expert keynote speakers, Dr. Cooperberg, Dr. Des, and Dr. Hope. So this is going to be a fantastic session on the PSMA PET and other aspects around high-risk prostate cancer management. So we hope we'll see you there for that. And it's going to be a national and an international webinar. So... I'd like to pass on the baton shortly to Dr. Monty, uh, but I need to make an announcement in the sense that Dr. Monty, uh, you know, after many years of excellent service, you know, as we all know, he founded music along with Dave uh, Miller some 10 years ago. Uh, and I have to say, I think he would like to have a retirement and I think he deserves it. So he's gonna be stepping down, uh, not being as active with us. So we are gonna miss him. Um, the good news is he will still be involved and will remain uh, as part of our strategic advisory board in music and still give us some guidance. So we hope to lean on you now and then, Dr. Monty. Uh, Dr. Monty, I, can, I know I, I speak on behalf of everyone in music, every single member. Thank you. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for your mentorship, your wisdom, your guidance, and for your forthright uh, vision. Thank you. We're going to miss you, and I hope we can celebrate your achievements in person at the next meeting in October. Um, so on that note, uh, on that, uh, I'm going to pass it on to you, Dr. Monty, and you're going to say a few. Before we do that, I, I think we can just, we'll, I'm going to give you a round of applause, and I know everybody else sitting there is going to do the same. Thank you. Don't use my time up with the applause. So thanks, Kershid, uh, uh, and... I can tell you it's been a tremendous privilege for me over the last nine years to be involved with the urologist across the state. Um, uh, we've got a phenomenal group of people, highly motivated, high integrity. Um, and I think the work that you've been able to do has been the envy of a lot of urologists from across the country and even across the world. But I do want to talk about the future a bit. Um, I think phase one of music could be considered from our inception to 2021 or 22. Uh, we made great progress. Uh, I don't think we demanded an enormous amount of the docs, um, particularly the non-clinical champions. So I think music going forward for the next five to 10 years in phase two, we're at an inflection point currently. Um, this is the, I want to make the case for why there needs to be some change and why we need to view this as an inflection point. Because we need to go from music being an add-on to something that if you do, if you feel like doing it, to whether, to where it's part of the fabric of care for all the urologists in the state, not just the clinical champions or the ones with the particular interest. So quality, in my viewpoint, um, is considering articulating the options in a particular care setting and then deciding with the patient on a pathway, relying on your best opinion based on the data 
the literature and your own experience. Um, and so the decision-making is what's really critical uh, for any surgeon. And as an example might be the, you could say the patient will have a stent because of the size of the stone, the need for a ureteral sheath or something like that. And we gave them literature about the stent. So this will help us understand why the, why you've decided to use the stent. Now that may change in the OR as well. So uh, the, the problem is that currently we're blind to the decision-making aspects of care and the rationale. And Dr. Patel mentioned this earlier in the discussion. Um, we don't know if all the options have been discussed. discussed. Uh, we don't know why a particular path of diagnostics or treatment was chosen. Um, now in 2021, the reality is, is that the EMR is the center of the universe, uh, whether we like it or not, that's just the reality. And either unfortunately or fortunately, the EMR I think is also the solution to us getting to the next level of quality uh, innovation in Michigan. Right now, we don't understand um, the mind of the clinician. Um, we won't get to electronic capture without some sort of a template. Uh, and we won't get to all clinicians being involved in appropriate QI settings unless there's some sort of template that is in, embedded in the practice in the usual care. I've seen many, many of our implementation efforts fall short. Um, and tonight we just heard about that 50% of people are using renal scores. 50% are, are following imaging recommendations for kidney. There's extreme variation in opioid uh, usage. There's less than optimal pro-participation in prostate cancer, we know that. So our implementation is really hard. And so I think the challenge going forward is gonna to be to rely on templates and to try to set up these templates that docs can use without them being a pain in the ass, but that can address a lot of the quality assurance issues. Now, I don't think this is gonna be easy, but I firmly believe that it is doable. Next slide. So I would like to uh, issue a challenge to the whole group. Each disease, prostate, rocks, kidney, needs to pick one encounter, whether it's a new patient or something different, but likely a new patient. And over the next year, through the coordinating center and, and a working group, develop a template. You test this then in one or two sites and socialize it so that everybody knows about it. But then each practice, has to commit to set it up in their own EMR. And it may, it may vary a little bit between each EMR, but that way it's gonna go from at different hospitals, you'll be, you can be using the template that's either set up in your dictation or set up in your outpatient notes. Um, and I, I really believe that this is something that, that can be started within the next year. It's gonna be a long process, but it's gonna be the only way that we may move the next step. So next slide. I, I think I would like to propose that music as an inflection point, and this is why we have to try to change 
and that music adapts or we could just continue to do really good stuff. But if we're going to want to get to great accomplishments, I think we're going to have to move to template that will allow us to get to in the mind of the physician and it will allow us to get to electronic capture. Again, thank you very much for nine years of lots of fun.